honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There ends our scripture reading for this afternoon. Let's sing in response Psalm 72, the stanzas 2 and 7. Our confessional reading is Lord's Day 39. That Lord's Day reads as follows. What does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and to all those in authority over me submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline, and also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. After the sermon, we will sing and respond Psalm 25, the stanzas 5 and 6. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Fifth commandment benefits both parents and children. Scripture recognizes the family as the basic building block of a well-functioning society, and it uses it as a metaphor for the covenant community when it speaks of our brothers and sisters and of the adoption we enjoy as children of God. 
families where there is consistent discipline and the children are encouraged to love and respect their parents tend to produce individuals who are productive, law-abiding citizens. As one commentator put it, cultures that do not encourage obedience to the proper authorities sow the seeds of their own destruction. The command to honor one's father and mother carries with it the broader implication to submit to one's employer, government officials, policemen, office bearers, and any other duly instituted authority. It's often the case that those who don't honor their mom and dad will not honor those other leaders whom God has set over us. At the same time, the fifth commandment benefits the parents. There will come a day, for most of us, when we will not be able to continue our present level of work and when we might need help taking care of ourselves. Given the selfish nature of human beings in general, it's no surprise to see children forsaking their parents because they get in the way or they cramp their style. The fifth commandment reminds us that in the eyes of the Lord, no elderly person is useless in the kingdom of God. Even when they have reached adulthood, children are to respect and honor their parents, especially those godly parents whose righteousness has been rewarded with long life. Christian homes must be the last place where the elderly are cast aside and youth glorified. And they must also be the first place parents can turn for help in old age. Honoring our parents also means that we care for the elderly people in our congregation, visiting them and seeking to learn from them. That's the perspective that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so I may proclaim to you the word of God under this theme. In the fifth commandment, God tells us, take care of widows. And we'll see two things. The duty of family members toward relatives who are widowed. And the qualifications of widows who must be supported by the church. The lengthy section on widows, brothers and sisters, 14 verses, reveals that one of the pressing issues in the first century church was the care of widows. And we know that as well from what Luke writes in Acts chapter 6. There we're told that soon after Pentecost, there were certain widows of the church in Jerusalem, Greek-speaking Jews, who were being neglected in the daily distribution. <clears throat> the apostles, as you know, immediately took action to address that problem. They knew this was not right. Up till that point in time, they had been the ones involved in the distribution of food and gifts to the needy. But as the church grew, it just became too much for them to handle. Because of time spent in seeing that the needs of the poor were met, they couldn't do justice to their primary task of preaching and praying. And so, 
Seven men were chosen by the congregation and appointed by the apostles to devote themselves to the ministry of mercy, especially to impoverished widows. The issue was not, should genuine widows be supported? The church knew they had a duty to fulfill there. Concern for widows had deep roots. The entire Old Testament is filled with it. The God whom they worshipped described Himself as the protector of widows. Psalm 68. And because God protects and upholds them, His people must do the same. Job, in his last discourse to his friends, recounts how generously he had shared his earlier prosperity. And one of the things he mentions is this, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. The law is filled with regulations for the provision of widows. Let me give you just one example. When you reap your harvest, said the Lord, and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the widow. When Christ came into the flesh, He revealed the Father. Also the Father's tender, loving care for widows. Read through the Gospels, and you'll see that He made time for widows. He had a soft spot for them, if you will. As soon as he saw that weeping widow from Nain, Luke tells us he had compassion on her. Knowing the Old Testament revelation, knowing the ministry of their Savior, the early church knew that widows deserved special care. The question was, how do we determine who qualifies for such care? Apparently this posed a problem because of the large number of widows in those days. And there were a number of factors that would have played a role in a high mortality rate among husbands, the the ravages of war and disease, the dangers of traveling by foot, lurking highwaymen, or by sea, shipwreck, piracy. The medical help the safe conditions of travel, the protection of police officers and so on that we enjoy today just wasn't there. Even now, most congregations have a larger percentage of widows than widowers, which may be due to the fact that on the whole, women live longer than men. Honor widows, says Paul, who are truly widows. The verb honor is an echo of the fifth commandment, which is a foundation for the duty of children to provide for aging parents and for a widowed parent all the more. Honor implies respect and sympathy and love, but it also includes material provisions as the context clearly indicates. The thrust of the next verse says, we'll see, is that children have to put their money where their mouth is when honoring a widowed parent. If the families pull together and fulfill the fifth commandment, then the church will not be financially burdened. Now that phrase, widows 
who are truly widows sounds strange. Isn't it the case that any woman whose husband has died is a widow? There can't be real widows and fake ones. Well, Paul's intention is made plain in what follows. He means a widow who is destitute, one who has no relatives who can be called upon and expected to support her. Because he continues, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. And that's something that needs repeating also today. We're inclined to turn that duty over to the church or to a retirement home. We make sure that they get their old age pension and any other government handout they might be entitled to. And then if the church and the state still can't cover the full cost of supporting them, we'll kick in the rest. Well, that order is backwards. It's unbiblical, actually. The beginning point is the home. Support starts with the relatives and not just the immediate children. The grandchildren also share in these responsibilities. Actually, the term that Paul uses can be rendered even more generally as descendants. That includes great-grandchildren if a widow lives that long, but also her sons-in-law, those who married into her family, And so the task of the deacons when discerning the needs of a widow is first of all to visit the extended family to determine if they're fulfilling their obligations in accordance with the fifth word of the covenant, honor your father and your mother. Notice that Paul does not define this as merely a social or filial duty. He calls the honoring of widows a matter of godliness. And there you have that key word again. We came across it in chapter 4, verse 8. Perhaps you remember. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So supporting your widowed mother, aunt, or grandmother is an act of godliness. And here again, you, you cannot miss the connection with the fifth commandment. By honoring our parents, we're submitting to God. Because, as Lord's Day 39 explains, it's God's will to govern us by their hand. In other words, you worship God in taking care of a family member that has lost her spouse. After all, we, we love God by loving His people. And God has a special concern for the widows. The phrase, and make some return to their parents, further specifies what the descendants need to learn. By supporting a widowed mother or grandmother, children respond out of thankfulness to the goodness of God in giving them caring parents. Parents who nurtured them through childhood and adolescence. An incredible amount of time and effort goes into the Christian upbringing of children, particularly from the side of mom. She's the one who labored 24 hours a day, feeding, changing dirty diapers, washing the clothes. The list is endless. An enormous amount of care and attention and love. And so Paul says, 
in return for what she gave you all those years, possibly 20 or more, now you take care of her prayerfully and financially. Why? Because this is pleasing in the sight of God. You don't help her out so that you will be the chief beneficiary in her will. You don't honor her because other family members won't. You don't support her because you're told to do so by the deacons. You do it for this reason. Because it's good and acceptable to God. This is a type of behavior that God approves and commends. Calvin directs us to creation in his commentary on this chapter. He points to the stork who teaches us gratitude, he says, by its example. It's not uncommon to see the old and feeble birds supported at times on the back of their young. How true it is that God's children are sometimes put to shame by God's creatures. With verse 5, Paul returns to what he has introduced but not yet explained, namely a real widow. It's somebody who's left all alone. And he describes her plight as not only being without her husband, but also without children to care for her. When you recall that society back then did not have the kind of institutions we have today, pensions, social security, retirement homes, you can see how important family care was. To be a widow without offspring in Paul's day was a much greater trial. It meant insecurity and uncertainty. You didn't know from one day to the next whether you'd have food on your table. Nevertheless, says Paul, a real widow has her hope set on God. Placing one's hope on God is a hallmark of the believer. One of the repeated refrains in the Psalms is that Israel hopes in God. Well, God meets the widow's needs through the care that His people provide for her. There's tremendous comfort for a widow in the knowledge that her Maker is her husband. She is married to Christ with all the elect. Though the married state on earth can be a blessed one, it's only a shadow of the heavenly marriage of Christ and the church. And in that eternal marriage, there are no widows. Her hope is expressed in this way. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. A widow who has no children has more time on her hands. She is free from the cares and concerns that come with having a family. She's able to be constant in prayer, night and day. Now we shouldn't envision nuns living in seclusion and praying on their knees 18 hours a day. The temporal expression that Paul uses shows when rather than how long. It simply means that she has a steady and regular habit of devotion. And one's reminded here of Anna, the prophetess. Remember her from Luke? She was married for seven years and then lived as a widow till she was 84. 
about her, Luke tells us this. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and outcomes and prayer night and day. We might be inclined to say about Anna and others in the same circumstances, oh, what a tragic and miserable existence. What does a widow have to live for, particularly those that don't have kids? What an unfulfilling and unfruitful life. And yet the Bible reveals that they can and they do have a fruitful life, despite their bereavement and their barrenness. They're privileged to devote themselves to supplication and prayer. And if Anna is any example, their prayers are for the fulfillment of God's promises, for the furtherance of His kingdom, for the redemption of Israel. Not themselves, and their own needs are first and foremost in their petitions, but those of the saints. The opposite of the godly widow is striking. The godly widow trusts in God and seeks first His kingdom. This one lives only for herself. Paul describes her as being self-indulgent. Verse 6. She lives for pleasure and luxury, for nothing else but the satisfaction of her earthly desires. Even though she's physically alive, says Paul, she's spiritually dead. Such widows have no claim on the church's care. Timothy must command these things, namely the instruction about the responsibility of children to support their parents and those concerning real widows. The verb command there is a strong one, but it was necessary not only because of Timothy's shyness, but above all so that they may be without reproach. No one should be able to lay a charge against the widows or their families or the church. There must be nothing in this aspect of congregational life that Satan or the world can take hold of criticizing the church, mocking her for the lack of love in certain families who neglect their widowed parents or because she harbors widows who are alive to the world and dead to God. Before spelling out exactly what sort of widows deserve the support of the church, Paul returns once more to the children and grandchildren, this time to warn them. Verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'd like you to notice how far the scope of support is extended. To relatives, it says there. So even a rich uncle, for example, has the obligation to support a widow who's not in his immediate family, perhaps, but in that of his deceased brother. Paul repeats the same theme in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may assist those who are truly widows. Why does Paul limit it there in verse 16 to any believing woman? Well, you have to remember the circumstances of those times. Paul was most likely referring to wealthy women, married or single or widowed, 
whose households included one or more widows. Not close relatives, perhaps, but servants or dependents or friends. Such women like Lydia or Chloe are encouraged to make themselves responsible for their welfare instead of right away handing them off to the deacons. The reason why Paul doesn't make this same obligation upon a believing man isn't that strange then. If a man were unmarried or a widower, it would be unsuitable for him to take over the care of a group of widows. If he were married, the responsibility and all its practical aspects would naturally fall upon his wife. Paul minces no words in describing those who neglect their widowed family members. Whoever doesn't provide for them has denied the faith. It's that bad. For no one can love God and at the same time ignore his poor and grieving relative, let alone his own mother. Such a person professes to know God, but denies Him by his deeds. And the Apostle heightens the awfulness of this negligence by saying that he who doesn't support widowed family members is worse than an unbeliever. This is true because the more advanced anyone is in the knowledge of God, the less he can be excused. If church members, if those who are baptized and have been instructed in the doctrine of salvation, if they shut their eyes to the clear light of God's Word, they are indeed worse than heathens. With these words of admonition and warning, Paul closes off this section of letters stressing the responsibility of children to care for their parents. And now he returns to demonstrating how the church may wisely provide for those widows who have no family to care for them. And that brings us to the second point, the qualifications of widows who must be supported by the church. Few parts of this letter, brothers and sisters, have given rise to greater diversity of opinion than what you read in the verses 9 through 16. And it all hinges on how you interpret the first part of verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. What does that mean to be enrolled? According to one view, Paul is talking about an order of widows, perhaps deaconesses, at any rate, trusted female assistants who were charged with much the same work as deacons administering the mercy of Christ, especially to children and to female members of the congregation. The problem with that view is that it reads the developments of the second and third century into the text. Indeed, by that time, there were orders of widows and deaconesses. In the Apostolic Constitutions, a document that dates from around 150 A.D., a distinction is made between these classes of female workers in the church. Deaconesses, widows, and virgins. Included in this writing are both a list of their duties and a form for ordination in which the bishop was to offer this prayer. I just want you to hear this. Also in light of the developments 
in our sister churches in the Netherlands. Eternal God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Creator of man and of woman, You who filled Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, and Huldah with Your Spirit, You who vouchsafed to a woman the birth of Your only begotten Son, You who placed female keepers of Your holy gates in the tabernacle and the temple, look down now upon this Your handmaid and bestow on her Your Holy Spirit that she may worthily perform the work committed to her to Your honor and to the glory of Christ. Well, you read nothing about being invested with an office or about ordination in our text. Paul wants Timothy to enroll real widows or to put their names on a list as the NIV has. Why? So that they know exactly who's being financially assisted by the church. The church funds were not unlimited. They had to be careful not to waste their resources on people who really were not in need. So what are the qualifications of those widows who are worthy of support? She must be no less than 60 years of age, says Paul. The age limit is at first glance surprising, but you have to keep in mind the advice that Paul is going to set forth for younger widows in verses 11 and 12. We'll get there in a minute. 60 was the recognized age in the first century when one became an old man or woman, and at an age at which remarriage as a general rule became less likely. Well, in addition to the age restriction, there are two other qualifications. She must have been the wife of one husband. If she had remarried, she would in all likelihood have family members who could support her and therefore not need the church's help. Paul's maintaining that in order for a widow to be put on the list to receive help, she must have been faithful to her husband as long as they were together. The phrase is simply expressive of a faithful spouse, one true to her marriage vow. And furthermore, she must have a reputation for good works. The example of Dorcas comes to mind. Acts 9. She's described as being full of good works and acts of charity. When she passed away, all the widows of Joppa gathered around her bedside displaying the coats and the clothes that she had sewn for them. Paul lists some examples of good works that ought to have characterized her life in verse 9. She must have been one who has brought up children. Whether it be her own or orphans is not stated. The point is, it underlines the, the biblical ideal of womanhood that Paul had mentioned at the end of chapter 2. We dealt with that some time ago. Yet women will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with modesty. Secondly, she must have a reputation for showing hospitality. Paul's speaking about Widows of whom the door of their home was always open. And not only because other members 
were always welcome, but because she was going out so often, visiting fellow members, lending a hand here, preparing a meal over there, offering her biblical wisdom and her life experience to younger mothers. As a third example, Paul mentions that she must have washed the feet of the saints. This was an act that was necessary in the hot climate and the dusty roads of that time. It occupied an important place in Eastern hospitality, but it was usually a service performed by the lowest member of the household, a slave. It was an act of humility and love for believers, exemplified by Christ Himself when He washed the feet of His disciples in the upper room. So these widows must have had to shown a, a willingness to serve, unashamed to take on menial duties, and not concerned about getting down and dirty. Fourthly, those who are truly widows ought to have cared for the afflicted. The affliction of which Paul speaks probably has to be taken in a comprehensive sense. Distress caused by the death of a loved one, the affliction of persecution, the pressures of poverty, and so on. And the concluding condition, devoted herself to every good work, sums it all up. Every kind of good work. It doesn't get any broader than that. And this took place not just once in a while whenever she felt moved by the Spirit, but she devoted herself to these pursuits. Such widows, elderly, alone, renowned for marital fidelity and good deeds, must be cared for regularly and faithfully by the church. It's different for younger widows. Refuse to enroll them, says Paul, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to remarry. The Apostle's not saying that any widow who, remar who remarries somebody in the Lord is rebelling against Christ. Not at all. That would conflict with what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. What seems to be envisioned, rather, is that younger widows, when supported by the church, tend to live it up. Be more immodest and self-indulgent, letting their sensual desire, for example, override their faith in Christ to the point where they might even marry an unbeliever in order to fulfill that desire. By abandoning Christ in their wish to remarry, they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Literally, that last part of verse 12 reads, having violated their first faith. And Paul's simply referring to their faith in Christ and being set apart to His service when they were first admitted by holy baptism into the church. To renounce that faith will bring divine condemnation. Another reason for not counting young widows among real widows is because they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they shouldn't. Not only young widows who are tempted to be busybodies, also other women in the congregation can fall into that same temptation. It may sound harmless, but Scripture ranks this sin 
with some of the biggies. Peter places it right alongside murder, theft, and wrongdoing in chapter 4 of his first letter. What is a busybody? It's a woman who sticks her nose into other people's business. Instead of being focused on her own home, her own duties, her own family, she's busy gathering and passing on titbits about the lives of others. How does a woman become a busybody? By being idle. Instead of taking care of her household, she lets the laundry and the dishes pile up and she gads about from house to house or mall to mall. Of course, the modern busybody doesn't have to leave her own home. She can do it from the living room through Facebook and Twitter and texting and email. From the negative, Paul moves to the positive. He wants younger widows to marry. The situation in Ephesus influenced this advice of Paul. In that congregation, the false teachers were finding converts among younger widows. And one of the elements in their teaching, as we saw from chapter 4, verse 3, was that Christians should abstain from marriage belong to a lesser spiritual order. In light of that teaching and the following that it had, Paul says, I would have younger widows marry and bear children. Be fruitful and multiply was God's mandate to our first parents. So one of the purposes of a family is to raise, of marriage, is to raise a family. Young Married couples today who postpone having children because of difficult financial times that young couples live in, they should check out how difficult the times were in Paul's day. With marriage and with children come tons of work. And that's expressed in the next phrase, manage their households. The best commentary on that verse is given in Proverbs 31 about the good wife who is more precious than jewels. Perhaps you could read that at home this evening. Why does Paul encourage this behavior? So that these young widows, he writes, give the adversary no occasion to slander. Now, Satan, of course, is the great adversary of the church. But he's not the only one. He uses human beings as his instruments. Could be Satan, could be people. Point is, Paul desires young widows, women in the prime of their life still, to remarry so that no one can find a pretext for for smearing the church. And the urgency of the whole matter comes out in verse 15. For some have already strayed after Satan. Notice how stark the contrast is. To turn away from following Christ, even in the smallest degree, is to stray after Satan. The misconduct and indiscretion of some of the young Ephesian widows is not just deplorable, It's destructive because to turn aside from the right path laid out in the Scriptures is to become a follower of Him 
who is the prince of darkness. So follow Christ completely, brothers and sisters. Submit to the fifth commandment by diligently applying these apostolic words. Your labor of love toward widows done in the name and through the Spirit of Christ is actually a labor of love toward Christ Himself. When He appears in the fullness of His glory, He will say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my sisters, you did it to me. Amen.